Yeah. Should we, does anyone else want to do the intro this time? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> From TLDR News, this is too long, didn't read. Okay, so we'll start with the uh, Manchester story. This is the news this week that um, the government and the Mayor of Manchester and the, the Greater Manchester Councils have kind of been at odds over the funding that Manchester is going to receive for going into the Tier 3 uh, restrictions. Um, Andy Burnham seemed to have done some number crunching and come to the figure of £90 million pounds, uh, being needed to help businesses uh, survive through the Tier 3 restrictions. Um, he said that the lowest Manchester could go was £65 million. Pounds. Uh, Johnson refused to give him that and offered a maximum of £60 million. Pounds. There's also the other number that's been sort of touted a lot this week, which is £22 million. Pounds, but it should be noted that that money is being given to improve uh, uh, local test and trace services and, and, and things similar to that, not to help local businesses, which is what the money Andy Burnham wanted, um, which is what Andy Burnham wanted the money for. So this has been sort of the back and forward. And then there was sort of a, a argument as to who walked away from negotiations and whose fault it is. There was a letter signed by the local MPs, who the, the Tor I think six of the nine Manchester Tory MPs signed a letter to Andy Burnham saying you were offered 60 million, which was something like 95% of the money or something around there that you asked for. Um, and you turned away without, you know, you walked away from the negotiations without accepting it. Andy Burnham disagrees and he seems to think that it was the government that walked away. Um, so there's, yeah, there's been a lot of controversy around this this week. Um, and I, yeah, what does everyone think about that? What, what do you, does anybody else have any strong Josh, opinions on Josh, why don't you Monday? start? Because I think Josh had a, not, well, just the, a contrarian opinion to yours there. Mm. Just the point about the, um, the offer of money really it's it i completely understand where andy burnham's coming from trying to do the best for his constituents and the people he represents because like manchester has really bad levels of child poverty it's one of the most has some of the most deprived areas in the uk um but in terms of the government side of things what i felt a bit weird about was the fact that obviously the government can't be seen to be giving different areas different levels of money mm. proportionally. So I felt like whilst Andy Burnham was doing the right thing for his constituents, it came to a point where you know you've gotta you've gotta accept that the government can't just be dishing out different levels of money to different people. So and then like um Liverpool Council prior to the Manchester thing negotiated really quickly. They got thirty million. It's run by Labour it's a Labour city mayor and then South Yorkshire yesterday I think has just got announced that he was going into tier three it got 30 million Dan Jarvis who is the Sheffield mayor and was involved in the negotiations like insisted it was the best possible thing he could have got um and it's just I just think it's interesting to compare the how the the negotiations pre and post Manchester went because it seems like Manchester's just the outlier and you would have thought that maybe Dan Jarvis or people going into tier three after Manchester would have maybe followed Andy Burnham's lead. Are you suggesting that Manchester got a good deal with the £60 million comparative to the other cities? No, no not? as in it seems to have just got the, it seems to have got the deal everyone else got proportionally because Manchester has pretty much double, or Greater Manchester has pretty much double the population of, mm. you know, like the South Yorkshire region, Liverpool, Merseyside. Um, so it's 
what I'm saying is it got the proportionate offer, but because of Andy Burnham's negotiations and trying to get more, fair enough, like he feels costing-wise, he needed more. But you just would have thought that maybe South Yorkshire would have followed his lead and negotiated in the same way. I think there's a couple of things to unpack there, though, isn't there? There's, there's firstly the question of whether or not the government's offer was proportionate to the offers of other cities, which is something we should talk about quickly. There's secondly the point about why um, Dan Jarvis didn't follow Andy Burnham's um, example, why he didn't put up as much of a fuss. Um, but I think that the, the thing that both of those are interesting questions, but I think the thing people opposed were so sort of opposed to was um, obviously the way the government handled the five not million. giving them it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the five mm -hmm. million and the 60 million, because obviously they did U-turn. Johnson was avoided that question five times in his press conference. He, well, for those of you who didn't watch the press conference, he was asked five times whether or not he was still giving the 60 million that they had originally offered Andy Burnham, that Andy Burnham had said was too little, to Manchester. And five times he dodged the question. And the obvious inference there is that no, the plan was that they don't get the money. And that I think that was the thing that people took such issue with. And probably the thing that me and Ben take issue with yeah. was um, the fact that that is such a such patent politics. And fundamentally, the people who suffer are the Mancunian mm. business owners. Um, but I, I think the on the question of proportionality, I mean, we did the we did the sums on that. Um, on that video, and it is on the lower end of the spectrum, the 60 million, and I think probably, um, well, I, I don't know what Andy Burnham would say, but he might want to say something along the lines of, uh, you know, a sort of simple per capita calculation is not sufficient. Manchester business owners have been in some sort of lockdown since the end of July. Um, you know, we need a, a bit of extra special support. And it, it is worth saying that, I, you know, obviously per capita, yeah. it was less than Lancashire. It, to be devil's advocate, someone could advocate that, yes, Manchester got less because there's more people so they can achieve greater economies of scale. Uh, certain... Yeah, but just certain, to very quickly put that argument down, Nelson, economies of scale is a fair enough relevant argument between sort of different categories of populations. But as to whether or not an economy of scale argument works, the difference between 1.6 million people in Liverpool versus 2.8 in Manchester, that's a... That's mm. a tenuous argument at best. Yeah, I'm just um, being devil's advocate. Can I, <laughs> can I just, can I just come back on the thing that you were saying, Zach, about the the refusal for Johnson to, um, to say what was happening with the 60 million in the press conference, and then the following morning you turning on that. I think that that, and I, as I say, I think you've already brought this up, if not in the last podcast, certainly to me since or at some point. Um, that communication is definitely an issue that the government is dealing with at the minute. Like, they are really bad at communicating decisions. I think in the video you even put, um, or, or I think it was either in the video or in the podcast, you put something like the, uh, uh, was it, I think it was Manchester, when they went into lockdown, it was announced at 9pm and then it was enforced the next morning. Like, yeah. And that's not an uncommon mm -hmm. thing. That happens frequently. I mean, look at the, I mean, just to add on to that, there was the... Um, you know, the, the country's going on the red list about where you had to isolate from when you came back. Yeah. And they don't announce, like, France is going on it. And the, you wouldn't know, the, the ministers would clearly not know when they go out and then come back and then the next day they'll, they'll give a definitive answer. There's been a couple of times when they've been finalising 
um, coronavirus restriction rules, so just rules nationally in the past, where it's been touted that something's going to happen, like from an insider, you know, in a, in a telegraph source or something like that, on like a Sunday. Then on a Monday morning, there'll be a cabinet meeting and that plan will be dropped and something else will be changed. And then in the briefing on the Monday afternoon, um, so something else will happen. This, it seems to be like, the, it seems like the government is making really important decisions last minute, not like like having a meeting with a really small number of people and and leaving the people that need to know about these changes in the dark and and that's yeah. that's really frustrating mm -hmm. from a planning point of view i mean pe people yep. have to plan their way around this pandemic and it's impossible to do so when the rules change so quickly and without so without any notice and that this here is another symptom of that um, with with uh, you know the funding and Manchester again being left in uh, you know people in Manchester being left in the dark it's 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 absolutely ridiculous I, I don't I don't understand how that can be defended um, I'm sure Nelson if you've got any arguments please let me know no. I don't understand how it can be defended I was actually going to back you up because something we've um, not mentioned yet is exactly how Andy Burnham came to know mm. he was going to get 22 million he was told live by reporters during his own press conference. Yeah. He didn't know. The reporters around him all knew first. Yeah. And does that not just show you how, last minute, how bad communication is at the minute? Does, is that not just the perfect, you know, example? And I should have thought of that one first, to be fair. All the examples yeah. I gave, that was the most obvious. But you're, you're absolutely right. And I just, I don't understand that. I, I don't, do not understand how you can run a country with decisions made at so, you know, and changed at the last minute in the way that it currently is. 100%, because you don't even have the person you're giving the money to at the table. Mm. So... So how are you meant to communicate that properly? It's like there's still to this day confusion about exactly what the 22 million is for. Yes. Some people are, some people are saying it is just for test and trace. But the, uh, the PM had a statement in which he said there was 20 million for test and, test and trace. And in his own words, 22 million for local response. What does mm. local response mean? I, when I, we say this 20 million for yeah. test and trace and whatnot, what is what is the actual funding for test and trace used well, for? I, I what I read from for I think it was maybe from Andy Burnham was that the twenty two million was for enforceability and test and trace. So whatever falls within that, possibly the in police. Well, I, I was thinking COVID yeah, marshals. Yeah, it is stuff like that. Mm. Um, because they, they announced these COVID marshals a few months ago, and they said it would be used in local areas. And I think that was the phrase they used. So I imagine it will be used to try and get some form of either police or um what's it called covid marshals community and, protection stuff yeah that kind of thing and then they would also use some of it to it, presumably increase testing there or possibly even this new you know there was they've been saying that this operation moonshot part of that is that they've got these really quick te uh, uh, um, uh, tests that will come back within like an hour and part of their plan for rolling them out from what I was reading was that they'll go into hospital settings first and then local areas with a high outbreak. So what I'm imagining is some of that money might go towards these swift, these quick tests that might be used in places like Greater Manchester to try and get them out of the restrictions. Again, that is just speculation and I, I don't know how true that is, but it could be that, that I, I would argue that could fall, fall under the remit of sort of test and trace, but who knows? I mean, what has anybody else heard different? Whatever. I just think on this whole thing, all of the negotiations, whatever side of it you're on, however you feel about 
what should have been done or whatever. It was just like a massive mess on both sides in terms yeah, of definitely. communication, in terms of negotiation. And it just I don't I don't think it needs to be that like partisan and when we're all trying to like, you know, come together and sort it out sort out these issues for people in tier three. It didn't need to be like a week long negotiation that ended like that. It was no. just a mess. I mean, I know I've spoken a lot, so I'll just try and get through this one quickly. But when I was preparing for the podcast yesterday, I thought, just just for sake of argument, let's have a look into some government projects that didn't go anywhere. Um, and because at the end of the day, at the yes, exactly. At the end of the day, <laughs> what they were arguing, it. what they were arguing about was five million pounds. The the difference between the sixty million and the sixty five million that Andy Burnham wanted. Now, here's some things that I found yesterday that the government, mainly Boris himself, has spent money on. There was £100 million for a Get Ready for Brexit adverts for the 31st of October, which we didn't leave on. There was the £13.8 million contract to Seaborne Freight, which was the ferry company that had no ferries um, for a a no-deal Brexit. There was £79.7 million for renovation of Elizabeth's Tower, which, I mean, does need to happen, but it's still a lot of money. I mean, that's that's £80 million. They were asking for £60 million. Garden Bridge, which cost £53 million and never happened. Uh, £323,000 by Boris Johnson that he bought as Mayor of London that was then ruled as illegal by Theresa May that they couldn't use. Um, £5.2 million for feasibility schemes for the Estuary Airport in London. So that was just ever so slightly more than what they were the, the difference between what Burnham was asking for and what he was given. Um, £305.5 million to the taxpayer to convert the Olympic Stadium for West Ham. Uh, they were paid £15 million by West Ham and a £2.5 million a year in rent. There was the Olympic Park Orbit Tower, which cost £3.1 million. And then there was the £10 billion on Test and Trace, with which only one quarter of the people who tested positive were actually contacted. And £5 million is 0.05% of that cost. And then there was the David Cameron Remain leaflets, which cost £9.3 million. So just to put into perspective how little money five million pounds that is was a government. lot of perspective yeah, yeah. <laughs> i want to really make clear the point that five million pounds isn't that much to government and i think hopefully that that has become at least a little bit more clear on the back of uh, those examples do you not think that what i was thinking during like the negotiations they should have just i was thinking andy burnham should just go i'll take the 60 million and then surely there's like prospect to then negotiate up from that to either get the five million or more, mm. depending on how much need there is from there. I felt like just take yeah, but, what you can get now and then go. Yeah, but from that, there. The, I think I, mm-hmm. I, Andy Burnham obviously presumed that that was what was happening. Yeah. I don't think, and I think the, and obviously Andy, but I don't think any sane either party to that negotiation or observer of that negotiation would have thought the outcome which Boris Johnson originally went for, and then you turned on the next day was actually going to be the outcome. But did, like, he, um, did he really you think? Because Matt Hancock, like a couple of hours after... Had said it was Andy still Burnham's available. That was the quote. Was available. Yeah, but the but quote that was... means like it's still available to him to take. Yeah, but I obviously that, that obviously wasn't the... the it wasn't that was in response to... The, that would have been fact 60 fact. million, that's all you're getting. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like it, was, it wouldn't okay. have been 60 million plus an option for negotiating that further 5 million. Um... And I just want to very quickly, because it's, it's actually an interesting point. I had an argument with um, someone about it uh, yesterday. And they said, um, they gave this sort of like business analogy. You know, it's like, well, if you push too hard, you're going to get nothing. Yeah. And it's just worth noting how that analogy fails. Because in a business analogy, 
if both parties walked away from the negotiations, that would mean that the government wouldn't got what it, what it wanted, so no tier three, and Annie Burnham would have got zero money as well, yeah? The reason that analogy obviously fails is because the government just got what it wanted and Andy Burnham got nothing. Um, and I just think that's worth pointing out to people and that fundamentally the discretion lies with government in these cases because they are the ones with the primacy, the legislative primacy, to give out that money. We, sh and we should also point out that there was Tory MPs like kicking off at the government, weren't there, in representing yeah. Manchester. So it's not a fully partisan thing. Having having said that, what I did read was that the council have to collect the money separately um, at, uh, from government. So that £60 million is split to the individual Ma Manchester councils. And apparently the Bolton council has broken ranks and has gone to negotiate a bespoke deal to get some of the money for themselves, whereas the others are like holding out to try and get a better deal from what, from what I've read. Bolton council's conservatives, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's a Tory, it's a Tory led council. I think it just comes down to power. It's, it comes down to who's controlling the money. Mm. Central government still wants that control over the money and they, they, they don't want to give it up. They don't want to just give 65 million without conditions. They want, those, they want conditions in place. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it's strange because at the minute it seems like there's a big debate, as you say, Nelson, about where, where sort of power lies. And I think local leaders are trying to act as if the power lies with them in the coronavirus mm -hmm. pandemic and there's this whole sort of um, approach by government where it's almost like a concili conciliatory sort of uh, response where they, they try and negotiate with councils and, and to try and get presumably public opinion on side so they'll, they'll say we've come to an agreement with local council you're going to go into tier two or tier three or whatever um, and because a lot of this pandemic is to do with trying to get the public on side with these rules because nearly, you know, almost all of them are completely unenforceable. So trying to get public opinion on side is, is important. But this has been the first example where that just is, as you say, it's all a show. It's not power doesn't, it's not a conciliatory sort of approach. It's not actually, um, power does isn't equal between the two you know government can impose when it wants and it wants to look like it's conciliatory for you know public opinion to try and keep people to, to follow the rules but when push comes to shove that's not how it works and they know that and as Dak said about the negotiation standpoint like they're very aware of that and when when councils don't play ball they're, they're happy to, to flex that power Shall we move on then? Yeah let's move on let's just yeah, move on Yeah let's move on PMQs yeah. Yes PMQs let's do PMQs so yeah, Pontus questions happened again this week. Um, obviously, midday Wednesday, uh, we and we kind of saw like three main areas that were sort of discussed um, by by Keir Starmer. The first one was to do with how do you get out of tier three, um, and there was some quite interesting answers there. Uh, the second one was kind of more about like Manchester and what was going on there. Obviously, we've already spoken about that, so I won't go too much into that one. Um, and then the third one was about circuit breaks and whether the prime minister supports them. Um, I think I think on on obviously the Manchester one we've already kind of discussed and it's kind of what what you'd expect there. Um, you know, Starmer said, um, "Why aren't you supporting Manchester?" Johnson said, "We are. We're giving them sixty million or whatever." So that's all fine. But the the other two the other two points the ones about um, how do you get out of tier three and circuit breaks was all kind of all over the place. Like mm -hmm. with with how do you get out of tier three? It was to do with if the R, Johnson came back with if the R's below one. To which Starmer said. What if it's above one? Can you get out of it? Johnson kind of gave a nonsensical answer, kind of didn't, or, or didn't answer is probably a better, better way to put it, didn't really answer, um, which kind of suggested that that's not the only way to get out of tier three, which obviously begs the question, what are the other ways, which he didn't um, elaborate on or answer. The question on how to get out of 
tier three is also related to the question of what is the point of tier two? Yes. Like, yeah. basically, no one's in it. Like, and London's in it. There's a few, obviously, like, Newcastle's in it and stuff. Like, there's a few places that are in it, but it seems to just be, like, you, you go... A lot of places just went straight into tier three, and it's quite hard to get out of tier three. Yes. To go. Well, so everywhere that goes. There's to no, tier not two. much point in going down from tier three to tier two if it's still an issue. Mm. Mm. And and that's the point. I think Starmer said that every region in the UK, other than Cornwall, has a higher number of cases than Manchester did when it first went into tier two or something. And his point is that everywhere's sort of raising up to the point of tier two and then to go into tier three. And that every every place I think Zach everywhere was about should to say, really be in tier two except yes. places like Devon, is it or something that Cornwall, Devon has like yeah. no cases or whatever. They've got a dec- they're having an, a weekly decrease in the number of cases, I think Cornwall. Um I don't know if about Devon, maybe Devon as well, but Cornwall the I think. summer's over. No yeah. one's going. Yeah. <laughs> and they're fairly, you know, they're fairly isolated from the rest. Of, like they're not in the central UK. It's just kind of like they're, they're, yeah. they're in there. So that was that was quite an interesting one. Then the last part. I mean, we we can discuss that a bit more in a second. But just just so I can get through sort of what actually happened. The last one was about a circuit break. Um, Johnson seemed to. The, the really weird part of this was that Johnson started off by sort of ridiculing Starmer for supporting a national lockdown, and he said he wants to turn the lights off and everything. Which I don't quite understand what turn the lights off means because if you're indoors, so the lights are going to be on more. But anyway, um, so he said we're going to. That was so petty. Go on though. Anyway, so t- turn the lights off. All this. So they're having a go at Starmer, and then Starmer said, "Are you, you know, are you going to support a, a you know, a circuit break on Friday, um, as in tomorrow?" Um, and he said, we'll do whatever's necessary, which suggests he hasn't actually got a firm answer and probably doesn't actually know himself yet. As we you know, discussed about the Manchester thing, I think that they kind of make decisions very last minute. So quite honestly, I don't think he has an answer. Um, mm-hmm. But I, why would you start off by ridiculing him for supporting a, 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 um, a circuit break if you don't yet yourself know whether you're going to impose a circuit break? That's just going to... If you do impose a circuit break, that's just going to come back to bite you. My um, theory on this is that he doesn't... He, I feel like it's going to happen, but he just he can't be seen to just be like giving in to the pressure from the opposition because that would make him look mm. bad. And I think he was my theory is that he was just sort of trying to wait it out to then put in a circuit breaker when when it doesn't seem like he's just responding to what Starmer said. Mm. But now that that's happening, I, it it just begs the question: is he is he going to do it, or is he just going to bite the bullet on like looking bad politically? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand. I, 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 as we, as I said about the Manchester thing, I just think it, it comes down to when decisions are made. And he's, I, I, you would either, if you know that it's not going to happen on Friday, you can, you can definitively rule that out, and you can use that to your, to your credit and say that you know the, the leader of the opposition is trying to shut down this country. We can definitively say that we're not going to be imposing a circuit breaker anytime soon. You can use that to your defence. The only reason I can see why you wouldn't give a definitive answer on that and use that to your advantage in prime minister's questions is if you don't know. Now I could be wrong, and maybe somebody disagrees with me here, but I, I just I. I I don't understand. And why would you start off by ridiculing someone if you don't yet yourself know that you're going to use it? I just don't. I don't. I can't. Again, don't understand that. Well, to be fair, um, they are having to work like in these situations. You have to work day to day on your strategy. Yeah. Obviously, they can be more coherent. But in terms of what you're saying about him, like not being able to say, like mm. there's there's the very real possibility that they might be planning and they just don't want to reveal it yet. But like 
you, in the crisis like this, you've got to, you can't just commit to something and then. That's absolutely fine. Fine. So don't ridicule Starmer for it then. Like if if, oh, you, yeah, if yeah. that's still on the table, don't start the whole thing off by saying, yeah, yeah. the leader of the opposition wants to turn the lights out or whatever he said. Like I don't, I just yeah. Uh, but I do understand what you're saying about the whole like there is a there is a benefit to maybe not showing your hand, especially in in a situation like this, um, because you know you d- you don't know what the week's going to bring. You don't know what's what happened happen at the, the start of lockdown, wasn't it? Like. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how, how much, you know, the whole herd immunity thing was actually going to be their strategy, but there was so much pressure for a national lockdown that then happened, regardless of whether that was going to be what they were going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. It, it came on the back of a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. You've been uncharacteristically quiet here, Zach. I presume you have. Do you have strong opinions I, on this? I'm going to explode now. No, I'm not. <laughs> I he's going to say that everybody you, from the from the speaker to everybody sat in that chamber was crap. They were all oh. awful. They were I actually was about to say that you you actually predicted what I said perfectly. But I complete I, the reason I was being quiet is because I actually completely agree with you for once. Um, <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head. I was just yeah. it was so disappointing week in week out to see well Johnson um, and for that matter some of as we saw with Angela Rayner some of the Labour MPs. Yeah. Mm. hurling petty crap across the yeah. chamber yeah. Um, for those of you who aren't up to date Angela Rayner called a Tory MP scum mm. um, in the House leader. of Commons yeah. Yeah, Angela Rayner deputy yeah. leader yeah um, she's since apologised but you know that's only so much she's still called someone scum in the House of Commons yeah um, and yeah I, on, on the Johnson front I completely agree with you it is so tiring it's just pathetic and it's it's definitely been a trend like you I've seen so many I mean we're not we're not going to go into cases here but I've just endlessly my Twitter feed is full of misbehaviour in the comments of people responding to sincere questions with sort of pseudo patriotic trite um it's just, yeah, and I mm. so I agree with you there, and that that made me slightly upset. I was also <laughs> on that front. I was particularly upset about the TFL thing, which we should talk about. Yes, at the yep. end of that, because that is nonsense. The TFL. So Boris Johnson's argument is that Sadiq's fair freeze. Remember, everyone remember that when yeah. basically he didn't make tube prices rise with what are they supposed to rise by? Anyone? Is it just inflation? What measure of inflation? It's it's probably inflation plus a few percent. Anyway, yeah, so he didn't make TFLs. And anyway, so his argument... Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Um, Do you want to explain that very quickly, Nelson? Uh, The hop fare is that uh, you can... If you pay £1.50 to get on the bus, you can get into any other buses within one hour and pay just that single fare. You don't pay pay a fare for each bus you get on. So I do actually have some stats on this. So the freeze in fares cost TFL about £640 over four years, yeah? which is, what, it's a 150 million a year. So the drop in passenger income from COVID is 1.9 billion, which is just, it's just way and above anything that the freeze fare created. Also, it's worth noting that, so um, they're required to have cash reserves for two months, of, for two months which was 1.2 billion quid. That was what they required. They had cash reserves of 2.2 billion quid, which is a billion extra. Um, and on the, the the very last thing is that um, they've all they have I think since their inception run a deficit, um, and Sadiq has for the last four years cut the deficit. So the deficit has been shrinking. They're still running a deficit, but um, they they've been cutting it. And um, it's worth noting that they they in I think 2018 
they no longer got a 700 million operating grant from the government. Um, and they now say they receive 40% less funding in real terms than they did in 2010. So, and that's from central government. So really what Sadiq Khan has done nothing in this case that you can reasonably claim to be the cause of this, um, of TFL's bankruptcy at the moment. Um, anyway, we should actually flesh that out a little bit more. Sorry, that was too slow. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, the reason that this is controversial is because obviously TFL's bankruptcy is not Sadiq Khan's fault. It's just that there was a massive drop in passenger numbers. And unlike other public transport operators, which, for example, in like um, in Europe, in Italy, in France, they're far more subsidized by the state. TFL actually makes most of its money. So 70% of its income comes from ticket fares. So it really relies on people going through. Like if it, there's a drop in customers that they really struggle. Anyway, um, it's obviously not Sadiq Khan's fault. And Boris Johnson is denying him the required money to bail out TfL and saying the only way you're going to get it is if you put in, you raise the money yourself, essentially. And they've told him how he's supposed to raise that money. So they've said stuff like extend the congestion charge to the North and South Circular, which is London lingo, but it basically means... You have to pay a certain amount of money when you go into central London. It means expand out that area massively. Um, and the reason they're doing this is because they think, and this was so explicit in PMQs, um, the reason they're doing this is because they're trying to decrease support for the current Labour London Mayor of London, uh, yeah. yeah, Sadiq Khan, um, and you know, make sure give their candidate, Sean Bailey, a better chance. Sorry that was such a long explanation, but you get the point. Um, and it was so explicit in PMQs because he literally said, you know, Sadiq Khan has bankrupted TfL, but luckily Sean Bailey will be back there to put its finances in order. And that was just, that was so sad to see because you're not even covering it. You're denying London money because you want Sadiq, you want Sadiq Khan to lose. And that, firstly, there was no chance in hell he will lose. He currently leads Sean Bailey by at least 20 points. There was just, there's no way he's going to lose. Um, and the Conservatives are polling that many points beneath Labour in, in general Westminster voting polls in London as well. Um, but it's so sad to see. And for those of us who live in London, um, it's a pain in the ass because, like, for example, Hammersmith Bridge, which... Oh, God. Yeah, don't even get us... Sorry, this is, is this too niche? Is this boring? Yeah. I, Neither I, I me I nor Josh live in London, so I think we're as baffled as the yeah, other people I've listening. I've no idea what's going you, on about London. I didn't know any of these things were... Okay, so... so the only thing to add here would be the, the, the major condition that has annoyed a lot of people in London is that the removal of free travel from children and the, uh, the over 60s. That, that has caused a lot of issues. What's Hammersmith Bridge got to do with it? Very old bridge that's about to fall down that you can barely walk across. And there's You're not no allowed to walk across anymore. You're not allowed to walk across. Really? No. Nope. No, you're not allowed to walk across. So it's, oh, it's just so boring. Anyway, it's basically a bridge. It's you're not rusty you're, on Google. It I'm is Googling rusting. it as well. Yeah, it's, it's rusting. It's made out of um, this cast iron, which has been cracking in it. Anyway, the point is, is that obviously we need a new bridge there because if you want to get from one side of Hammersmith Bridge to the other side of Hammersmith Bridge, you know, like it's maybe like 100 meters tops. Yeah. But to do it, you've got to walk about five miles in this massive U shape to take another bridge to cross it. Yeah. Um, put, anyway. Put Putney or Bridge. Anyway, it's a complete disaster. And they, they, they blamed Sadiq Khan for the collapse of an, an 18th century bridge. 
They said it's his fault. He's got to pay for it. And obviously he can't pay for it because mm. why, where do you get the money to build a new bridge? Yeah. Um, and so th- this is the, the theme is that basically things happen that aren't Sadiq Khan's fault. And the government says, we're not giving you any money. It's all Sadiq Khan's fault. If mm. you want money, vote in Sean Bailey who's their candidate, which is Who presumably will politics. then be given the money. He will. He'll be given a load Probably, of money. Yeah. This just comes back to the, the stupidity of excessive partisan politics, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's just, there's, to, to a degree, obviously, it has to be done. But, like, you know, it's, it's not acting in the national or the London interest from the government. No. On a, in compi- not like well, I know anything about London. We've got some nice bridges up here. Just to degrade the conversation slightly, it is a nice... I know it's bro- breaking down and everything, but it is a nice-looking bridge. It's a beautiful yeah. bridge. I live really, really close to it. I used to walk over school over every day. It's a beautiful yeah, bridge. Yeah. bridge though. I, I, I used to get the bus over it every day as well. Yeah. So it is the big as the Humber. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, bridge nice. talk. This is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should probably move on from bridges. I don't think this is, our, yeah, this is what people anyway, are here for. That's the general point, is that basically the government is blaming London and Doral Assemblies generally yeah. for things that just aren't their fault and then withholding funding as a political move to get them to do things that are unpopular. Yeah. So that the Conservatives stand a better chance of winning in those development assemblies, which is so pathetic. And obviously the real people who suffer are yes. the people who, yeah, the, the over 60s and the kids who used to get free London transport and now won't get it. Or yeah. the people who need to take the tube into work when TfL goes bankrupt. Well, I learned something new about that with the Hammersmith Bridge. So I'm glad we spoke about ben, that. And you need to make the thumbnail for this, um, just a picture of a bridge. Okay, I don't make the thumbnails. <laughs> You'll have to raise that with Jack, but um, I'll, I'll mention it to him. Okay, should we move on before we, we yeah, talk sorry, too much we, about bridges? We, we talk too long. Yeah, so there's been... There's a Telegraph article that um, was written um, about the... the about Patrick Vallance speaking to MPs about the belief that once a vaccine's found that this is all just going to be over. And I think that some people do kind of unrealistically put faith in the fact that once a vaccine's made, this is done, pandemic over, everything's back to how it was. You know, we'll just talk about the pandemic as being, you know, a relic of the past, you know, something we all had to live through for a few months. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. What was said was basically that it's very rare that we'll get a vaccine that will be 100% effective. The the only, I think he said, um, the only human disease that's truly been eradicated, this is a direct uh, quote, the only human disease that's truly been eradicated and that's from a highly effective vaccine um, is to smallpox. So it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so although there's been a lot of progress on a vaccine, it's not going to be 100%. And I read a separate article as well that was basically just saying you have a percentage effectiveness of the vaccine. So assume that's 75%. Um, you know, it, it might not be, it might be higher, it might be lesser. But, you know, let's say that's 75%. Then you multiply that percentage by the percentage of the people that are given the vaccine. So again, among the over 60s or 65, I can't remember the exact age group, but they're given flu vaccines. And I think that's around 70 to 75% that, that have that vaccine, uh, the, the, the over 60. I think in, uh, the UK, sorry, is actually one of the um, leaders in the world in terms of the number of people who are given the, the flu vaccine. So assume that among the over 60s, that's 75%. You multiply those two percentages together and you get something, you know, that, I don't know, 56%, something, something around there. So you, you, you multiply those two together. 
Um, and 56% isn't that much. Like, it isn't, it isn't high enough to be able to relax social distancing completely. And that's assuming two very high percentages. That's assuming that the vaccine is 75% effective and 75% of people get it. I mean, the example I used was over 60, 65, because that's around the percentage that get them. But if you go in lower age groups, the percentage that people get that get the flu vaccine is lower. And I know that this isn't, you know, coronavirus isn't the flu, but in terms of who you're going to immunize, how many people are going to accept, you know, how many people are going to get the vaccine you know it's not going to be a huge a huge percentage because you can't force vaccines on people um and then there's the cost to it and everything else so basically what they're saying is this the the the, the, um the main point of the story is that people are unduly putting faith in this vaccine and it's not going to put the world back to how it was unfortunately we can all hope that we can get a hundred percent effective vaccine and it will be you know we'll, we'll end this like we did smallpox but the likelihood of that happening is not is not high the likelihood of getting a vaccine is high but uh, the likelihood of getting a 100 percent effective vaccine is not um, and i think people do need to bear that in mind and i i really hope that people don't think that when we do get this vaccine that that's just going to be the you know the silver bullet that's going to end this thing um because it isn't um, that's very cheery it's not i know yeah. it's not i know it's not cheery i know it's not happy I, I mean i'm just i'll try and put more of a positive spin on it which is that it will still do a do a lot to help the the, the virus that's that goes without saying that a vaccine is obviously going to help massively and you know social distancing guidelines will inevitably be relaxed as relaxed as a result they'll be you know to some degree they won't be completely i don't think they'll be completely relaxed but they'll be relaxed to an extent and you know it'll be a lot easier to live life and everything else so it's a, it is a positive it's just not as much as a positive as people seem to think um so yeah has anybody else got anything to say about that i think nelson you, no, you looked into this yeah so someone can correct me if i'm wrong but none of the vaccines where in production produce a long-term immune response it's all quite short so it's invariably going to be a process of you have a vaccine then a year later you have to have a booster vaccine so it's going yeah. to be this cycle of of restrictions easing and lifting easing and lifting as we as we uh, vaccinate the entire population again and again and again. Yeah, um, exactly. And and I think that's that's part of the whole. Um, you know, assume that it's seventy five percent efficient. I think that's where the efficiency. Uh, you know, the efficiency mm -hmm. part comes in because you know you, you'd love to be able to have a vaccine that you would give to someone and they'd be you know immunized. You know, from then on. But it's just it's just not it's just not um, it's not realistic. Um, and then that's where the whole, you know, vaccine rollout, you know, arguments that, that have been going on at the minute uh, come in and how you distribute this vaccine to protect those most vulnerable, how often you get, you know, how you get them there, how often you give people a vaccine if, if you do need it, you know, every few months to be able to get this um, immunity. So it's just, yeah, it's uh, it's a difficult one. As I say, none of us here, uh, to my knowledge, have any higher education and anything to do with the sciences. So I'm sure that some of the terminology I used is probably could be better. But um, for, 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 from what I've understood from reading articles, that's 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 what 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 uh, it seems like. I think immunity is probably the wrong word. I don't really know what what the correct word is, but I think people know what I mean. Um, short term protection. Short term protection. Yeah, that is quite miserable, unfortunately. It is. I mean, it's it's good that you're informing the the people. You're doing <laughs> your duty, but um, yeah. it is yeah, it's still quite just quite a miserable thing to think about for a little bit. I really do want to stress that it's. I'm, I do want to stress that that's not to say it's not going to be good. And I know I've already said it, but I just I really want to make that clear that I don't want people to go away from this thinking, well, b to the vaccine, who cares, sort of thing. Because it's still 
you know, it's still going to help and it's still going to provide some form of protection against, you know, a, a good protection, in fact, against the uh, against the virus. It's just not not 100 percent. So it's not it's not this. It's, mm-hmm. As I said before, it's not the silver bullet. But um, as time goes on, we better understand the virus so we can put into place better measures. It's it, it, we've got to see the positive each and every day. We're understanding mm. everything a bit better and we can control it a bit better. It's just a matter of time before yeah. we eventually return to normal. That's, that's a good point. And, and as you say, so as, as we get the vaccine progress and as we get more more knowledge of the virus generally, we'll be able to know about exactly how to deal with this best. And it's not so much guesswork and it's m- more based on, um, you know, more accurate science, you know, more mm. well-researched and everything else because we've got more data to deal with. So every day that goes on, we get closer to a vaccine, we get more information about it. So again, I'm, I'm just really trying to make th- this point that it's not, this isn't a negative, it's just managing expectations and it's just being realistic about how this ends but we'll have to see anyway so should we move on to something else so brexit where to start um last week david frost and uh michelle barnier basically ended agree ended talks completely saying that there was no deal in sight uh on the uk side and the uk basically disinvited uh, Michel Barnier from any future negotiation meetings and Boris Johnson said to prepare for a no deal. The issue is that this week things have seemingly changed in that Michel Barnier on Wednesday said a deal is within reach and negotiations have restarted on a daily basis now and apparently there are still three areas of dispute, fishing rights, level playing field and dispute resolution it's just a matter of time to see whether we can get a deal on all on these three key areas but the the talk the talk in recent days has been more positive than it was last week josh any thoughts i've I've noticed i feel bad now that i've scuppered your we were going to talk about america no 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 i'm not i'm not a i don't have a lot of knowledge on the whole brexit the ins and outs what about a layman's perception what 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 do you think then what you're you're the man on the club i think i don't know i think they'll it feels like it was a negotiation tactic to say from boris to just say it's all it's all done and there's no point in negotiating it feels like they're everyone wants a deal and they're working to it and some form to me at least it feels like some form of deal will happen whether that whether it means on those three issues that Nelson raised, only like two of them get sorted out or something. I think something will happen, but and they'll just keep extending the deadline until the first of January when it actually has to, when that is the actual actual deadline. To me, the That's deal just, would have to be concluded by the mid by mid November. Well, okay, because it has to mid November. Has to pass the actual yeah, deadline. Has something. Yeah, has... I think something will happen before then. Well, I've actually had this argument with another guy on the Yard. You know, Zach, other Zach. Yeah. Yep. We occasionally have a little spat about it because he's he's very optimistic. <laughs> he thinks that well, I mean, so far his predictions have been wrong, but his end prediction might be right. He's always optimistic that um this is all gamesmanship and that the there is a there is a there is a deal easily within reach and everyone knows what's going on. Um, I'm really quite pessimistic. I know that they've really resumed talks, but um. I think that the deadline is it's just so much closer than people realise. Obviously, mid-November, 
It's really, Nelson, you probably know more about this than I do, but it really is like the actual last deadline, especially if the deal wants to get ratified by all those national assemblies in the EU. Yes, so it has to be ratified by the European Council and then the European Parliament. So mid-November is the very last point at which it could do, unless unless an extraordinary summit is called and an extraordinary gathering of the European Parliament is called, because then we've got Christmas holidays, because invariably MEPs will go on holiday so it has to be mid-November. Mid Does it have to go through all individual parliaments as well? Yeah, just it do, well, it depends yes. on the nature. If it cuts across competencies, it can be provisionally applied before it goes through all of them. But I think it has... I don't know how much that would do for us. Um, basically, the problem is, is that if the deal, like Canada's did, cuts past EU competencies, so, you know, like... Um, and I think some of the state aid stuff, like... The EU doesn't have sole jurisdiction over, like, the EU's state aid stuff. Yeah, for example, like, some of that is still down to national assemblies. And so mm -hmm. if... Principle of subsidiary. The, yeah, so if the um, the deal says something about that, then they have to go check with every national assembly. Be like, is this okay with you? Is this okay with you? Is this okay with you? Um, which is, there's 38 of them, quite a lot of them in the EU. So that'll take a while. But also, I think, um, uh, on the state aid and the dispute resolution thing... They are essentially, well, the, uh, actually I should say the level playing field and the dispute resolution thing, which are the two last things, the two things apart from fishing that Nelson just mentioned. Those are essentially the same problem. The issue is about, um, which we explained in that video, the state aid thing. And I just don't see, um, I, I just don't see a way, an, a possible agreement on dispute resolution. And to make this very, very clear, very, very simply, um, Obviously, the, the UK says absolutely no, the European Court of Justice can't say anything about this. And the EU says, we'll want to say, well, whatever deal we come up with, it's going to be about EU law. It's going to have to be the ECJ. And this would be fine if there was trust between the two sides. They could have some sort of fudge, like some sort of third party that, you know, sort of calls the shots and then in last resort refers cases back to the ECJ or whatever the UK's court is. But there is just too low a level of trust for them to agree on that sort of semi-fudge, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's why I'm generally pessimistic. Um, I, I, I completely agree, because ultimately there will be, there will have to be an external power that calls the final shots. It's not because otherwise it's just going to be the UK and the EU shouting at each other. So yeah. the, the EU are going to stand, stand firm and want the European Court of Justice, or, and then... The, the, the only possible solution I could think is if the WTO court is involved in one way or another. But that, even though that's weak and the EU probably won't. No, they were, I don't think they'll take that. I don't think the no. UK will take that. I think what would be more likely is that had this come up in a, with a different government that hadn't... Had this come up pre the Internal Markets Bill, which is the bill where the, government, oh, the UK yeah. suggested they break international law, I could have seen some sort of something equivalent to the Northern Irish Joint Committee. So it'd be a, a group of officials, half EU, half UK, and they talk it through, recommend some sort of dispute resolution. And if that isn't agreed on by both sides, then you know, then perhaps there are like retaliatory tariffs allowed or something like that. But I just think that at this point, the EU, that requires some trust. That requires some trust about the people you appoint to that committee. That requires some trust about whether or not you listen to the committee's decisions. That requires some trust about whether or not you decide not to just dissolve the committee, as they sort of have done with the Internal Markets Bill, once you've signed the, the deal. And I just think that the trust is too low there. It's a sort of semi-fudge. Like, it just mm -hmm. sort of pushes 
the um, the buck down the line a little bit to this joint committee, which is just reasonable officials. And um, I just, I don't see either side trusting the other enough to go for something like that. Um, I think that's a shame. So anyway, I put, currently put the odds of a deal about 40%, I think. So that's the end of the podcast. And we're going to try and do these every week. So hopefully we'll have another episode just like this one out next Thursday. Thanks for listening.